You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast. Stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Today, we have a unique episode of Common Grace. As Juneteenth is celebrated this month, we had conversations about a Jesus-centered approach to racial reconciliation and righteousness with David Swanson and Reese and Phil Skye. David shares with us theological and ethical framework for issues of discipleship around race. Reese and Phil shared stories out of their own experience. If you haven't listened to our episode with Dominic Gilliard, we strongly encourage you to go back and listen. Today, we will be discussing how this topic affects us as people, as Christians, and how we deal with racial tensions within the church. I really enjoyed these conversations. I hope you do too. So we have David Swanson with us here. I'm so excited to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we're going to be you know, asking some questions really involving a quote I read in your book. You wrote, uh, Rediscipling the White Church, which is a great book that anybody and everybody should read. Thanks. But there was a quote in here that I thought might get us started or at least put a framework around our conversation. And you wrote, you like to take people in your church on a trip. You call it a, a pilgrimage with the goal of leading participants further down the road of racial reconciliation. So if our faith journey is is a pilgrimage, if it is a journey... One of my questions for you is, what has your journey been like on this road to racial reconciliation and righteousness? Yeah, well, it probably started, you know, before I was aware it did. I was a missionary kid. My my parents were missionaries in Venezuela and Ecuador. My dad uh, was a, a pilot, flew small little airplanes around kind of hard to, to access areas and serving the the church and local congregations there. And so I think growing up in that, that cross-cultural environment probably in some way uh, made me a little bit more uh, aware of uh, issues related to race and culture, ethnicity, and, and the ensuing disparities as well. Our family moved to Southern California in the 90s. And so these were the, you know, these were the Rodney King years, the OJ Simpson years. These were the years where uh, immigrants, uh, particularly from uh, Central America, were really being uh, demonized in, in California and legislation was being passed uh, that was would have really been been destructive. And then, you know, later my wife and I moved to Chicago and got to know the city through some friends who were from the south side of the city, who the majority African-American side of the city, which is where I now live and, and get to serve. And so I, I just think that all along the way, there have been these, you know, these moments and these stories and these people and these events that have caused me to read scripture from a, a particular vantage point. I'm a Christian. And so I come to this conversation about racial reconciliation and justice from a Christian perspective. And it's really hard for me to read scripture any other way than really seeing that God cares deeply about uh, the reconciliation of all things, that we see Jesus accomplishing this on the cross, and that this then has to play out in really tangible ways, in ways that interrupt what we take for granted, interrupt the, the kind of cultural status quo. And so I think a lot of those experiences probably led me some to some pretty deep scriptural convictions that uh, compel me in, in this ministry. What were some like eye-opening moments, kind of like the scales falling off Paul's eyes? What were some moments that maybe just a new awareness hit you along that journey? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it's it, they, they've been pretty small little steps along the way. I think for, for my first few years in pastoral ministry, I served a, a congregation in the in the Western suburbs here as an associate pastor in a majority white uh, neighborhood and majority white church, which I just loved. And that church and its pastor really 
instrumental in my own call to ministry. And then again, spending time in the city and, you know, in African-American neighborhoods with, with our friends and just realizing how we're talking the distance of sometimes 15 miles. And yet the difference is just profound. And the thing that was always interesting to me about that was the kinds of assumptions that, uh, you know, my own white neighbors had about their literal neighbors, you know, 10, 15 miles away and just how much ignorance there was, how many assumptions that that there were, how much disinterest oftentimes there was in, in their sisters and brothers in Christ. And so I think that for me was probably one of those points where I really started to think about issues of race and racial disparity through a a lens of maybe discipleship and Christian formation. And why was it that we could be worshiping so close to each other and yet not be kind of engaging in similar realities with one another? And and in some ways, that's kind of an animating question for a lot of what I've done, you know, in the ensuing years. You talk about seeing like disinterest and disconnection with disparity. Where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, so so when I read scripture, I, I see, especially the New Testament, I see a young church that is learning how to be this surprising community, right? That nobody was asking them to live like this. Nobody was expecting them to. There was nothing in their culture that was saying this would be a good idea, that Jew and Gentile, slave and free, right? That you all should live to one another, be mutually submitted to each other. And yet they they did it. And they fought for it and they fought about it because it was worth fighting about. It was that important. And I just don't see that in the vast majority of white congregations. I don't see that desire. I, I don't see us lamenting the fact that we are, are relatively ensconced in our, our racial segregation. I think that comes from that lack of desire. It comes from discipleship, not a Christian discipleship, but a kind of cultural discipleship, a secular discipleship, what I call in that in the book, racial discipleship, that we have been formed and shaped by different dynamics and forces from our society, which have led our desires away from the rest of the body of Christ and towards some, some other things. And unfortunately, most of our white congregations haven't recognized that racial discipleship. And so we've not discipled folks in a different direction. And I think that impacts what we love and what we desire and what we want. And it's maybe sounds a little too blunt to say it this way, but I'm just not sure that the majority of us actually want the reconciliation that we see the New Testament talk about. Why is that, do you think? I think there's other things that we want, right? C.S. Lewis writes about this, that it's not that our desires are too strong, that they're too weak. And, and we've contented ourselves with some pretty weak desires, desires around security, stability, homogeneity. And these are kind of certain aspects of the American dream that we've contented ourselves with when what we see God wanting for us is, is something that is much more impossible <laughs> to do on our own, is much more surprising, has to do with a, an experience of family that is rooted in the, the shed blood of Jesus and the shared baptismal waters that we all share in together that constitutes this new family in Christ, whose very essence and presence bears witness to the power of the gospel. And yet our desires have have just been a little maybe misshapen to actually want that. I don't think it's inevitable. I think we can want more than we want right now, but we got to maybe shift some things in order to to have those desires grow. So when you're describing a type of vision of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus right there, it can be really easy to settle for something less. 
And I love how you write in your book, you write about this and, and it just kind of oozes out of everything you, you talk about uh, is a connection between our discipleship and our understanding of race and identity. Could you, could you maybe speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, race is a relatively recent construction from a, a, a human standpoint. We don't find any mention of race in the Bible because race wasn't invented yet. We find ethnicity in the Bible. We find nationality in the Bible. We find the the sort of echoes of culture in the Bible. But race isn't invented until hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later by people who are wanting power. It's a it's a way to create a hierarchy that allows uh, one group of people to exploit and marginalize another group of people in order to to have access to power. And, and so I think that the way that that has been overlooked by many of us who are Christians is an indictment on our discipleship. Because we we see other things, right? We see other things in our world and we say, man, that, that thing right there, that leads us away from God's heart. That leads us away from God's will. And so we need to go in a different kind of direction. I think we could talk about greed, right? As Americans, we see all sorts of displays of greed and greed celebrated. And Christian people generally have said, Oh, we got to go in a dip. We got we go in the direction of generosity. That's what it means to follow Jesus and into the kingdom. We've just not done that when it comes to race. We've assumed, we've believed the lie that race is just this kind of neutral thing that exists that organizes people in different kinds of ways without understanding the really destructive history behind it. And so we need to apply our discipleship to race in the same way that we have in other in other ways as well, so that we start to see a little bit more clearly, to see how we've bought into some stuff that's not true, how we've been led in some directions that are destructive and un- unhealthy and, and harmful to our sisters and brothers in Christ, and then begin to go in a different kind of way. You know, th- there's a few things I almost want to have you unpack in there because what, what you said yeah. is so crucial. I mean, you're, you're talking about discipleship, the formation of human humans toward the likeness of Jesus or toward the likeness of something else. Right, right. You know, Christians might call that uh, an idol or idolatry. Yes. And you compared it to greed, which, you know, that can be a form of idolatry. We can worship yeah. our money and treat people like like things and treat our money like it's the thing that gives us that's right everything we want. And you're saying that with that's the same thing with our racial identity. Yeah. So uh, a few questions that hit me right off the bat is first and foremost, when you think about that, how does that play into maybe power dynamics, disparity? Maybe another way of saying it is Mm -hmm. a word that a lot of white Christians struggle with or a term is systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you make some connections? How does what you're talking about, whether it's greed or racial identity, connect to systemic racism? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, there's so many different directions that we could go with that question. And it is a super important question right now. So, so there's a really important book that was written about 20 years ago by a sociologist, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith called Divided by Faith. And in this book, they make the really important point that there are three defining attributes of white Christians. They call them uh, three tools that we reach for when it comes to these conversations. And they identify individualism, relationalism and anti-structuralism. Now we don't need to go into each of these here, though I would strongly commend the book to, to folks who are interested in this. Chapter two. Right, right. Individualism is this idea that we are all autonomous individuals, that we are best understood simply as individuals and not as members of you know other other communities. And again, we could we could go deeper into that if it's helpful, but 
the thing about individualism is that it makes it very hard to see some of these more systemic connections, to see the way that things are, are related with each other. And so oftentimes white Christians, when it comes to this conversation about race or racism, we think very individualistically. We think, okay, this is a relational breakdown. And so if we can get person A who is of this race and person B who is of this race to get along with each other or to make friends with each other, then we've really made some progress. The problem with this is that it does nothing to address the kind of structural, societal level injustices that are impacting you know, a person of, of, of this race rather than the person of, of this race. And so we need to have a, have a kind of theology that is robust enough to open our eyes up to the way that sin infects not just individual actions or motives, but sin infects societies and structures. Now, I don't think there's anything controversial about that, right? Because who creates the societies and the structures? It's sinful people. So we leave our fingerprints all over this stuff, right? And those structures and those systems do not bend naturally towards the kingdom of God. Of course they don't, because we know we live in a sinful and broken world. They bend in other directions, idolatrous directions, as you said a second ago. So this is this is one of the things for white Christians to really pay attention to, that when we're talking about race, yes, I could have a racist, a racist thought. Absolutely, I'm a sinful person. I could say a racist thing. Of course I could, I'm a sinful person. And there are systems and structures that have been infected by, by the sin of racism that wreck a, a disproportionate havoc on some people rather than other people. So we, we, we want to have a robust theology of sin so that our, our gospel, which is big enough to address that, can actually address that. So I think this is actually one of the biggest thing that holds white Christians back in this conversation is we, we have too much of an individualistic view of racism when we need to say, yes, that, but also there, there are systemic and structural things that are damaging our sisters and brothers in Christ. And the love of God compels us to care about those things as well, because we care about our sisters and brothers in Christ. Amen to that. Why do you think it is so difficult for maybe white Christians or Christians that have grown up in a very homogenous setting? Why is it so difficult for them to acknowledge systemic racism or institutionalized racism? And that kind of becomes like a very uh, polarized word. Yeah. Why, why is it so difficult around this, the idolatry or sin of racism? But if you looked at like greed, people would be able to say, yeah, there's systemic greed within capitalistic systems. Why do you think it's easy to see it over here, hard to see it over there? I think it's because we're talking about something that has to do with identity, right? There, there, there is no group of people that is just the greed people, the greedy people, right? I'm a white person, you know, I, I can be categorized by my by my racial identity in some way. And so that's much harder, right? Like that, that feels much more personal. So when we start talking about systemic racism, what am I supposed to do? I feel shame? Do I feel guilt, right? Like, is this all about how I have, you know, had this super easy life and, and everybody else has had this really hard life? So I think all of those voices start to get turned up in that kind of moment because we we, we have a hard time differentiating this concept of race as a whole from, you know, from my own particular, you know, part or, or story in that. And, and so I, I think that one of the aspects of spiritual maturity for white Christians is to be able to have these conversations and say, yeah, we, we can talk about the sins of race and racism because I know I have been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that my life is hidden in Christ Jesus and, and that my, you know, that my acceptance comes 
comes not from my merit, from my self-righteousness, from how good or strong I am or how non-racist I am, but simply by my inclusion in, in the body of Christ through the, through the work of Jesus. So this gives me a confidence and a platform then to say, okay, so I can acknowledge, yeah, that this sin is maybe bigger than I thought it was. And you know what? Maybe I was even complicit in it in some ways or benefited from it in some ways that I didn't know before. But this platform is strong enough of the gospel. I can open my eyes up to this. I can listen to the testimonies of my sisters and brothers of color and believe them, not question them, not get defensive when I hear them, but, but instead have a, have a response of care and concern and compassion when I hear these stories, again, because this platform of the gospel is strong enough. Man, you're firing me up with just how fired you're up you're getting. And, and this concept, I think is so important. This reality is so important. I have like two strands of thought. I'll go with a, a human one. I'm going to go very practical. A human heart one is why is compassion grieving with those who are grieving? Why is that so important in being able to move forward on your racial road of, of yeah. reconciliation? I think it's huge. I mean, this is what Paul says in, in Romans 12, right? That we rejoice with those who rejoice we mourn or we grieve with those who who are who are grieving and his his vision here is that this is what it means to be the the, the family of god together that you know who's grieving and you know who's rejoicing. And now who's Paul writing to? He's not writing to a group of homogenous people. He's not writing to a group of people who their culture would have said, oh yeah, you all go together. That makes sense. He's writing to the opposite of that, right? He's writing to a group of people who have come together only through the power of the gospel. And so this, I use the word solidarity very intentionally. I think it's a very Christian word, right? We stand with those who are grieving. We, we, we're present with those who, who are rejoicing, who are going through something difficult. There's an embodied solidarity, I think, to the Christian life when we understand our place within, within the body of Christ. So before we ever talk about like, hey, should a church become multi-ethnic or multi-racial? I want to say all of us, no matter where we live, no matter how homogenous our town, our city, our neighborhood is, we can grow in this area of solidarity. We can come to see ourselves. I would put it this way. We can come to identify more closely with the diverse family of Christ to whom we belong than to the homogenous racial categories that our culture has imposed on us. That's the move of maturity, right? Our racialized culture says, here's who you are. Here's what you are. And yeah, we got to interact with that. We got to engage with that. But what are we first? We are bought by the, by the blood of Jesus. We share this faith in Jesus together. And so that becomes our primary identity. Can you connect the concept, the way you're defining solidarity and how you look at solidarity with disparity? Yeah, I mean, so disparity would be this idea, this this idea of of not just inequality, but a kind of intentional inequality, right? Like a a way in which a society is built that gives some uh, of us access to more and and others of us access to to, to less, and so we see this disparity in in these outcomes. And when you look at any metric of flourishing or well being in our country as a whole, it's I don't know how you come to any other conclusion that then that that then that there is a racial hierarchy that benefits white people and that disproportionately injures people of color, but particularly African-American people and, and Native American people. And, and so we see this disparity in these in these different outcomes. How likely is it that you're going to live next to a toxic waste site? How likely is it that you're going to die giving birth to your child? You know, how likely is it that your child is going to attend an, an un, under, you know, underfunded school? All of these things. We can we can track all of these things. 
so unfortunately, many of us who are white Christians have just, we, we, we've missed this, or we've, we've told other stories about why these things are the way they are. Oh, well, this person must somehow deserve it, or this group of people must somehow deserve this, rather than that gospel instinct towards solidarity, to move from where I am to where you are, to, to inconvenience myself so that I can understand where you're coming from. I can understand what you're going through. I can sit with you and learn from you and hear from you how I can participate in your own uh, protection and flourishing. All, all the kinds of basic things that we would kind of expect from Christians who are uh, next door neighbors to one another, right? But who have now been divided because of this racial segregation in our country. That That's, I think, why, why solidarity is so important. Well, why should, why should Christians inconvenience themselves for the sake of someone else, David? <laughs> what a crazy idea, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you be a Christian and follow Jesus without being okay inconveniencing yourself? I, I don't know. I mean, this is, but again, this is the, this is the impact of our, our society's discipleship on us. Right. And here's how we got it. We need to be reflective about this. And, and, and as pastors too, we, we have to be honest about, at least I, I think we do. How have we been complicit in some of this, right? Like how have the cultural norms that are so acceptable in our country, how have we adapted to those or, or taken some of those things on so that comfort and safety and security become sort of like just assumed neutrals or norms in our discipleship? When what we see in Jesus is take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Like, you, I, I come to bring a sword. You're going to lose father, mother, sister, brother if you follow me, right? All, all of these th this language that Jesus gives to prepare us for the cost of discipleship. Now, the flip side of that is Jesus says, whoever's lost all of these is going to gain them all back, right? You're going to be welcomed into a new family not going to look like the family you were expecting. It's going to be surprising. It's going to be diverse. It's going to cross lines of hostility and, and, and division, but you will receive this new family. Again, it's a question of do we want it or not, I think. This all sounds really difficult, David. How do I get started and why should I get started if I'm, if I'm wanting to move forward on that road? Yeah, I probably the why question first, right? <laughs> and we probably probably gotta know the why before the 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 what. The why is that it's just so good. I, I mean, God is good. And anything that God promises is good. And anything that God wants for us is good. And the fact that we haven't maybe experienced what God desires for us is not the same thing as it not being good. It just means that we've not experienced it yet. And, and so I, I do think for many of us in the majority culture in this country, we've not had the opportunity to experience the kind of solidarity that we're talking about today. We've not we've not necessarily seen it presented as part of our discipleship or part of, part of our walk with, with Jesus. And, and so the why is that God is really good and what God desires for, for his people is always going to be very, very good. What, is, what does it look like? It starts, I think, by actually learning to, to want this, to want to be more defined by our place within the family of, of Jesus, to want to know our sisters and brothers in Christ who've been separated and segregated from us by race or, or ethnicity or segregation, by wanting to understand what's happening in those churches, what's happening in those communities, what are the points of grief and rejoicing that we can join in with. From that curiosity, I think the Holy Spirit opens up countless possibilities of what individuals and, and, and communities can do. In the book, I, I write about how a, a local congregation or ministry could start to think about some of this. So I, I think the possibilities are endless, but I would start with that question of desire. I loved how you just, you had a phrase about curiosity, but like a sense of holy curiosity yeah. that we are surrounded by people made in the image of God. That's right. C.S. Right. Lewis talks about the weight of glory, these creatures around us that someday we're going to realize are the most amazing, beautiful things God has created. That's right.
one of the things that strikes me as I'm listening to you, we have people who are listening who maybe have been following Christ for a long time. We have a, a large portion of people who are very new to faith. Mm-hmm. I also know we have listeners and, and folks who are exploring faith. Yep. Could you give maybe an alternative vision of what the kingdom of God could look like to like maybe someone who's exploring, who's like thinking about this whole Jesus thing, but they've seen like that maybe some of the structural aspects of church and religion that can seem so opposite to some of the things you're talking about. And I mean, if you could put it in, just give us a painting of the beauty of the kingdom, like what this type of faith is calling us toward. What what would it be? You know, yeah, paint that for me. Yeah. When I think of the kingdom of God, I think of that place where God's will is is perfectly accomplished, right? It, it's God's will is doing what it needs to do uninterrupted. And so when Jesus says, you know, that, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, heaven is that place where God's will is perfectly accomplished, righteousness, justice, grace, mercy. The biblical word for peace is is shalom, right? It's not just the absence of strife, it's the presence of flourishing, of abundance, of health, right? And, and so Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer with the conviction that because Jesus has come, because Jesus has lived, given his life and resurrected, that that place of God's perfect will is actually breaking into our world. And we all understand that our world is not a reflection of that. We are a rebellious people. We are a sinful people. Uh, we see time and time again how, how our own will bends away from, from this. But the amazing thing of, about Jesus's promise is that we actually get to participate in announcing the kingdom of God in this world. And that that includes our mouth, but it includes our, our lives and how we live together too. And this is the part for me, if I'm speaking to a non-Christian, I want to say, you need to be ready. If you're seeking, if you're asking, you need to be ready for your life to be upended because the kingdom of God is very, very different than the, the kingdoms of this world. You're going to be invited into a new family. You're going to have friends that you never thought you would have before. You're going to find yourself caring about stuff that you didn't even know to care about before. You're going to be deeply enmeshed in communities and relationships with people who are giving their lives to the flourishing of all things because they believe this is all God's good creation. So you're going to find yourself caught up in a movement, or you should, that that is going to turn you inside out. And at times... You know, I think it's always important that we say this. At times, that's going to be really hard. At times, following Jesus and alerting the world to the kingdom of God is going to feel like a kind of death. And Jesus warns us about this, right? He's very clear about this because we are having to die to this, these old discipleships that have, that have bent our hearts and our wills towards smaller desires and smaller loves and more selfish things. But I feel like I can say really honestly, on the other side of that, there is a kind of new life and hope and experience of God's abundance that makes makes it very clear that that was actually not a death, but was, was a resurrection. That's what we want, right? Like we want people who believe that God's kingdom is actually coming, that it's breaking in all around us, and that where we haven't experienced it might have to do with the fact that we didn't want it. We weren't looking for it. And what might change if we did? You know, I've done this racial righteousness, racial justice thing now for a while, and it's super hard. And there's a lot of pushback. And, you know, there are people vehemently opposed to this. As we know, we all know we live in a a racially tense country. And so the hits are very real. I promise you, I would never want anything else. Like, 
what God wants for us is just so much better. And so the, the hits are like, ah, that's, that kind of, that stinks, but am I going to go back to something else? Like, no way. Are you kidding me? It's just too good. That's the treasure in the field. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly right. On this journey then, what are a few myths that you think need to die? And what are a few desires or steps that need to live? I think one of the biggest myths for those of us who are white is the myth of our own innocence. And this is a a strange one for Christians because to say yes to Jesus is to admit that we're not innocent, right? It's to admit that we are in need of salvation. We're in need of the mercy of God and we're in need of a complete transformation and a resurrection into new life. And yet, because we've not applied discipleship to this issue of race, many of us have seen ourselves as being innocent in this area. So that when the conversation comes up, we very quickly get fragile. You know, we, we very quickly kind of resort to a defensiveness or a denial and we appeal to our own innocence. Well, I never owned slaves. My family never owned slaves. I've never said something racist. The biblical example is very different. I think about Nehemiah, who, as he's serving in this position of great power in the king's court, receives news from Jerusalem. The walls have come down. The city is suffering. And his first response, if you read Nehemiah chapter one, is to repent. You know, he literally falls down in lament and repentance, and he confesses what wasn't his personally to confess. He wasn't there when these these things happened, but he places himself in the story and the trajectory of his people's rebellion. And then he makes himself available to God for something new and different and beautiful. When we keep appealing to our own innocence, our own self-righteousness, we miss out on participating in the new thing that God is doing, in the big thing that God is doing. And again, as Christians, we understand this. We know this. We just need to apply it to this place of race as well. So that when these difficult conversation comes up, when these words like whiteness or white privilege, that we don't respond reflexively but that we instead say, let me place myself in the story. I don't need to appeal to my own innocence. Let me see what God might be inviting me into. White privilege to some people means white guilt. How would you uh, respond to that? Yeah, I don't think anybody's interested in, in white guilt. We're interested in responsibility. We're interested in spiritual maturity. So I know that as a person who is six feet one, I have some height privilege. I can reach some things that my wife cannot reach. I know that as a man in this country, I have some privilege related to my gender that my, that my wife does not have. I know as a person with no significant disabilities, I have some privilege that a person who you know has experienced some disability doesn't have. It's the same thing related to race. It doesn't mean that I've never suffered anything or that my ancestors never suffered anything. It just means that I've never suffered because of my race in the same way that sisters and brothers of Christ have been marginalized, ostracized because of their race. So to identify white privilege is to simply try to describe reality, describe these different impacts, and then to take responsibility and say, okay, if this is the uneven playing field that we're all walking on, what's spiritual maturity look like for me in this place so that I can, again, link arms with those sisters and brothers who maybe have experienced less or none at all of that racial privilege, and we can be the body of Christ together. Where do you see examples or models of this type of racial reconciliation and righteousness happening? Can you give us some models where you see good goodness? Yeah, I mean, I think we we see, you know, we see glimpses of it around our country. You know, there was a, a man, there is a man named John Perkins who lives in Mississippi and, and founded the Christian Community Development Association, who in many ways is one of the godfathers of this. And, and they've done really amazing racial reconciliation work in Mississippi for you know decades now. 
my own mentor, Brenda, Brenda Salter McNeil was in Chicago for many years and is now uh, out, out your way in Seattle teaching at, at SPU. And she has been a, a model of this and has led many, many churches along this journey. I'm blessed here in Chicago to have a, a few churches who have been living into this for a long time and given us kind of a model to follow. But I, I want to make a differentiation here. You know, there, a church like mine was, was started with this, with this vision. And we said, this is the unique thing about us. We want this to be the thing that when people look at us, they're like, what? This is, this is weird. We have some questions. And then we would get to say, well, great. We got some stories to tell about Jesus that would help you understand this. But the fact is there's many congregations around this country who are majority white who also have the opportunity to live into this. And that for me is the journey to, to solidarity. That, that's what I want and really deeply desire. See, for a long time, those of us who are white Christians, when the conversation about race came up, we imagined it to be mostly about somebody else or somewhere else. This is a conversation for black Christians. This isn't a conversation for multiracial churches. What I'm hoping we're seeing now is the paradigms being switched. And we're saying, we're seeing white pastors and white churches say, you know what? This is our conversation too. We have a role to play in this as well. And this, in this paradigm of discipleship, I believe allows us to include a whole lot more of us in this racial reconciliation work, which is what what I believe we need. If you have Christians of color and you have, you know, in our, in our context, we live in a majority white community. How can they work together within a church and then also individually within their own callings? You know, how have you seen or how would you encourage, you know, a diversity of people to work together? Yeah. So I'm, I'm white. And so my starting point is to kind of talk to white people. I, I think one of the things we need to recognize is it is not a, I want to say this. There's different stories and there's different work in a majority white church. And frankly, even in a church like mine, that is very multiracial, the balance still tilts toward cultural whiteness. We are in the majority culture. We have experienced the most power and privilege in this country. The average white person has something like 90% or the average black person has something like, like seven to 10% of, of the wealth that the average white person has. Right. So just, just economics alone. Right. So I would encourage us to be honest about that, to not try to do a kumbaya thing like, hey, let's just all get together and sing some songs together. Let's put a let's put a diverse worship team up on stage and and call it a night. Let's acknowledge that there are some power differences here. Let's acknowledge that there's some difficult histories that we need to get into. And that's okay because Christians can tell the truth about these things because we follow the one who who is the truth. So I would I would start by saying, let's let's tell the truth as, as plainly and as clearly as we as we can. If I'm in a majority white setting and there's people of color there, I'm asking myself, what can I do to ensure that these sisters and brothers feel like they can bring their whole selves to this congregation? What can I do to make sure that no sister and brother of color feels like they've got to leave behind some of who they are in order to be acceptable here? Because we're not after assimilation, right? We're after solidarity. And those are two very, very different things. And so I would be having some of those conversations and and, and spending a lot of time listening around that. And yeah, I mean, from there, things get really interesting and good and hard and messy, but also really creative. I just have a few more questions for you. One of the big ones is if you look at personal sin of partiality or racism, any, any kind of area of, of disparity, creating disparity between, between people based on race and classism, all that stuff, personal sin, systemic. Can you give me some examples of personal versus systemic sin? Like if it, I guess maybe a better way to put it, let me put it this way. 
if um, I'm someone who's listening, I'm like, okay, I can see personal sin in other people. Maybe not so much myself. Sure. I definitely, I don't like the idea of the systemic racism that's been dealt with a long time ago. Yeah. What would you say to that? Like with some concrete, tangible examples for systemic racism? Yeah. Well, I I don't know how it works in Washington, but here in Illinois, public schools, the majority of their funding comes from local property taxes. And so what that means is that the medium income of a child's zip code is going to determine the quality of education that he or she has. And given the history of racial inequality in this country, you know, poverty often maps onto race with a, a fair degree of accuracy. That's systemic sin. There's a system there that has been infected with sin, which means that the likelihood of an African-American child in my city going to an underfunded, ill-equipped school is much greater than that of of a white child. That's sinful, right? And that, you can't find any one person and say, that's your fault. That's your individual sin. I need you to repent. And then the whole thing is going to be fixed. Individuals can be, we can participate in that, right? Like as an individual, I can choose to know that or I can choose to willfully look away as a white parent. I can choose to go with the flow and pull my children into uh, whatever the best possible school is that I think I can get them into. Or I can choose to invest, you know, myself and our family's life into the flourishing of the, the neighborhood school that we go to. So personally, I can participate in that or not, but we need a theology that is big enough, not simply to compel my personal participation. We need that, but also to help us have a vision for the way that sin has infected the system as a whole so that we can start to link arms and partner with other people who are doing their level best to bring about a systemic change. So maybe that the funding structure, for example, changes for our public schools so that every public school in the state is getting a a more equitable form of of funding, so that every child, no matter your zip code, is going to a school that has more or less access to the same same kinds of resources. That that would be maybe one one example. That's so good. Would you you put maybe even areas of taught history within schools of things that have been omitted or over a period of time? Would that also fall within some of those systems? Yeah. I, I mean, this is one of the, the sad things, you know, when I talk with, you know, many white adults and they're saying, well, how come I never learned about this? You know, how come I never heard this? And it's because, you know, many of our history books just, you know, told a, a particular version of our of our shared story. And it doesn't mean that it was wrong. It just was incomplete. There were just really important voices that we didn't hear, many important experiences that we didn't get to learn about. And here's the heartbreaking thing to me as a Christian. There are so many amazing men and women of God, saints from previous generations that white Christians have just never heard of because they're not white. But these are saints who could inform our own discipleship today. They give us a vision for what it looks like to live faithfully in the face of injustice or or, or persecution. But we just don't even have a a memory of, of these folks. One of my favorites is a woman named Ida B. Wells who lived here in Chicago. And she was really responsible for starting the anti lynching movement after the Civil War single handedly. And this is a woman deeply informed by her Christian faith and her Christian convictions. And you read her journals as a young woman and her piety is just, it's, it's beautiful. And yet we, most of us never heard of her. And, and so haven't had the chance to be formed by her own example. Again, that's one of those good gifts that changes when we start to move in this direction. And that's how you can actually move into solidarity is by actually hearing these stories. Right, right, right. Man, there's always so many follow-ups I'd love to ask, but let me just, I guess, kind of close with, if you were to just go to sleep tonight and you woke up 
and it was, uh, let's say, you know, 2030, it's like 10 years from now, 2020 is long gone. And you were to wake up and your hopes for the church were being realized. I'm talking about like the church globally, you know, the, the church in America. What would you hope to see for that church? What would you wake up to if it was your dreams were coming true? What would you wake up to with the church's impact on its communities and in its world? Yeah, well, that's a that's a dangerous question, right? Because because it kind of exposes you to hoping for some things and, and wanting some things. I, I really do think it would be around this word solidarity. I want American Christians and white American Christians in particular to live into our baptismal identity. I want us to really believe that in Christ Jesus, we have way more in common with sisters and brothers who do not share our race, but who share our faith in Jesus. I think if we want that, I think if we desire that, that's evidence of a whole lot of other amazing stuff happening. That, that's evidence of, of that systemic change. That, that's evidence of a, of a reorientation of, of, of will and desire. But what, what's helpful about that for me is that I think a lot of times when we're talking about the systemic, it, it feels really overwhelming, right? It's like, what can I as one person do or us as one congregation? But we can start there. You know, we, we can start by praying that God will give us those kinds of hearts and those kinds of identities and those kinds of opportunities to love and serve the body of Christ such that we would bear beautiful witness to our world, to the resurrected Jesus. Yeah, if I woke up to that, I would be, I'd be thrilled. Well, David, thank you for, for doing this interview. We've, we've so appreciated having you on. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I want to welcome Phil and Reese Sky to the podcast. So glad to have both of you. And would you guys mind just telling us a bit of your story? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Reese Sky here with my handsome husband, Phil Sky. Um, so we actually met many, many, many years ago. I was 14. He was, should I say how old you were? I was 14 and one day. No, he wasn't. He was, he was 17. And we met in high school and, and our high school was located in Southwest Fresno. And in Fresno, there are basically it's a tale of two cities. Um, you have the haves and you have the have nots. You have the very rich and you have the very poor. You have those with resources and those without resources. And so we met sort of smack dab in the middle of, of a neighborhood that was uh poor and little to, to no resources. And in Fresno, there are 22 pockets of concentrated poverty. And we met in one of those pockets of concentrated poverty in, in Southwest Fresno. We immediately began dating, whatever that looks like in high school. I don't know. We began dating and we got married. We are actually going to celebrate 20 years of marriage on July 28th. Congratulations. Wow. Y'all keep praying for him. Way to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we just we realized very early on in our relationship and in our marriage that we had a collective call. We had a collective vision and a collective purpose. Yes, we love each other. Yes, we like each other. Yes, there's mutual submission and respect. But we knew there was something bigger and something greater that the, that the Lord wanted to do among us for the kingdom. And so we really began exploring what would it look like to to serve our community and to serve one another and to to serve other other people groups by way of racial righteousness and racial reconciliation. And so 
To make a very, very long story short, we planted um, On Ramps Covenant Church almost 10 years ago, and we planted that church in a neighborhood that we live in. Um, We've been living here in the Lowell neighborhood for 14 years now, and we planted this church with our neighbors, for our neighbors, alongside of our neighbors, and we've really been able to just kind of explore more of this racial righteousness piece and and reconciliation and, and community transformation and stuff like that. So it's been, it's been quite an adventure. And that, that of course was like the Cliff's Notes, Cliff's Notes version of our story. <laughs> Phil, you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, there's, listen, I mean, when it comes to our story, there's, you know, there's, there's my version and, 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 and then there's the truth. You know, I just wanted to check on the facts. This is good. I'm glad we have both of you. <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, you know, we, um, yeah. So, you know, we met in high school and, and just this incredible journey. And for those that don't aren't familiar with us, you know, I just, by way of introduction, I mean, you know, Reese is an African-American woman. I'm a Caucasian man. So the, you know, the dating journey, we, we went to a high school that is very ethnically diverse, very culturally diverse, very economically diverse. It's, it is the most diverse high school, public high school in, in our city. It's a remarkable place. And, you know, so, so dating interracially was, was a journey, you know, for Reese, she often talks about her family her brothers and, and others who are older than her, you know, they had dated interracially. And so when Reese started dating me, that wasn't an earth shattering sort of, you know, event in my family. Like my, my whole family's white, like, like the whole family's white. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, when I started dating interracially, that was a new thing for my family. And, and uh, so, you know, one of the things that, that we've, Learn and, and Reese talked about you know kind of our you know our sense of role yeah. in the racial reconciliation journey mm-hmm. and in the story of our city, but in our families, you know, we've also had a role. One of the things that we did when we were getting married is you know you could only meet so many members of your family commonly prior to getting married and we got engaged had a you know one year you know engagement and, and we hadn't had a chance we got family that are out of state and so we sent invitations to you know folks that we were inviting to the to the wedding but we very intentionally included our engagement photo in the invitation because we wanted to make sure that any member of our family and when I say our family, I mean my family that maybe wouldn't be super excited right. about the fact that I was married an African-American woman, that they would not be surprised by that when they got to the wedding. Venue. Right. That right. they would know that in advance. <laughs> Who um, is this black woman walking down the aisle? <laughs> I mean, because we, we didn't want to pay for that. We don't want to pay for the, the paramedic, you know, the emergency <laughs> vehicle outside. We just thought that was an expense that wasn't necessary. Right. You know, due to heart attack there might be a steep cultural intelligence learning curve for people right yeah right. yeah exactly right. Right. so so we we've just been aware i mean we've been aware of the effect and impact mm-hmm. our marriage has on others and the ways in which they have to kind of reorient mm-hmm. you know their worldview in order to have a relationship with us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you, Phil, in response to that, you know, like emotionally how that's made you respond. But before I ask that, 
you know, I know that the, the people who are listening, you know, our listeners here probably come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And uh, we're in a time of a lot of racial tension. And I've had conversations with well-meaning people who would say, like, racism isn't something that's an issue today. Uh, they might have, you know, issues with you hearing terms like uh, systemic racism. And, and certainly I, I remember having a conversation with someone who said, hey, that maybe 20, 30 years ago, but in our community, no way. Would you mind maybe just speaking to a concrete situation? I don't know what might come to mind, but before moving to the reconciliation part, I think naming some of these issues concretely is helpful. So, Reese, would you mind just sharing, if you're comfortable, maybe the, an, uh, <laughs> some of the ugliness of racism that maybe you've you've seen and experienced? Yeah. Um, I mean, where, where do I start? <laughs> I mean... When we talk about racism, we have to acknowledge that it happens on multiple levels. Yes, there's this systemic and institutional level. Yes, there's the the personal level. There's the private, the private incidences, right? But then there's also the microaggressions. And one of the things that I know that we have really been exposed to over the past, you know, few years, if I could just speak very candidly, in this country, we have been exposed to not new racism, but more freedom with the racism, more freedom that people have felt with the rhetoric and with the, the actions and with the postings. It, people have literally lost their minds and have felt like it's OK for me to support public figures who are very vocal about their disdain and hatred towards other people. It's OK for me in the church to speak ill of my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's okay for me to have an affinity and allegiance towards a flag deeper than I have an affinity and allegiance towards my brother and sister in Christ. It's okay. Like people have really believed that and it's been painful. It's been hurtful. It has been intolerable. It has been damaging to our witness as the church of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how we recover from this, George. I, I, I honestly don't. But there have been on multiple levels, personal experiences, educational experiences. The way that we've responded to this pandemic has shown our racism. It's been honestly, it's been pretty disgusting. And again, I don't know how the church will recover from this, especially because that is where most of my community that I speak with and that I'm in relationship with, the church is the place where we have experienced the most racism and the misuse and misinterpretation of scripture to sort of endorse and validate where we stand and what we believe. It's just, it's just been, it's been wrong on every level, on every level. So. That you guys, that was so beautiful. And, and I think very, very practical. I would encourage listeners to go rewind this and listen to the three strands and then the, you know, the four chords from, you know, Dominique real quick question. I want to throw at you. I imagine, you know, there might be some listeners who come from a background where they come from a more individualist background, less collective or communalist, you know, maybe their background has been such that they're afraid that terms like systemic racism ideas around that might be coming from uh, a co-option of uh, what would be called like critical race theory or things like that, that are being co-opted into Christianity that, you know, aren't healthy, aren't good. What would your response be to to someone like that who was like, well, is, is this just co-opting the Christian faith with these uh, other philosophies? 
You know, my, my take on that, George, is, again, I, I just think there is, to begin, this, so Reese's talking about remembrance, and we've got to first see our communities as they are, not as we want them to be, not as we wish they were, not as somebody said they were, but as they are. You know, this might feel very, you know, not very warm, but I think one of the ways that we get to that is we just look at data. And, and I've said that not twice, and I'm sorry to do that. I, I can't believe I've introduced data into racial reconciliation conversation twice. But, um, but the fact that you have, have to isn't a commentary on you, my friend. <laughs> well, fair enough. I, I, I think you look at any system. So it's the healthcare system, whether it's the educational system, you know, wh- whether it's the various structures that our local governments, you know, are facilitating. I mean, just pick anything and just ask people in that field. Hey, tell us, you know, where you're seeing kind of the greatest opportunities for for growth. Mm-hmm. Where are you struggling in your system? Who is not succeeding in your system? Who Who's falling out of your system? You, all those kinds of questions, right? Who isn't getting the service that you want to provide at the same level? Just ask those questions. Those are like, you know, exploratory data questions. And you'll find from system to system Mm -hmm. that it is ultimately people and communities of color Mm -hmm. that are always the communities and the individuals and the families that are really suffering Mm -hmm. and not getting equal opportunity and Mm -hmm. equal access Mm -hmm. in each of these systems, every one of them. Okay, so now we can pause. And you can either at this point say, oh, he's going down the critical race theory path. I can accept that. I mean, if that's what you want to suggest I'm doing, I can accept that. But then I just want to, I'll I'll turn back and say, well, then what then, what do we do with with the way our community actually is? Mm -hmm. What then do we do? What does the church do? What what does your theology say about what the kingdom looks like on earth and and what is the church's role? So I think that it's a bit of a... um, I'm trying to find a, a, a kind phrase, but but like uh, maybe a maybe a cop out. That's good. Um, mm-hmm. to, to just say, oh well, that's critical race theory. I'm ignoring everything that you're going to say now. Right. Listen, look at your own community yourself. Don't don't take what I'm saying. Just you you go look at your community. Yeah. And at the end of it, systemic racism is very simple. It's people get confused about the idea, but it's simple. We understand individual racism. We think about Bull Connor and George Wallace, and we think about, you know, Montgomery. And, we, I mean, you know, we, we know what individual racism looks like. We have a picture of that. Maybe we've experienced that on, our, on some level. It's just simply a mistreatment. It is a, a bias toward people based upon their race. It's just simply not treating people the same based upon their race. Well, systemic racism is the same thing. It's just when systems don't treat people the same way based upon their race. So, you know, 40 percent of African-American, you know, kindergarten through third graders right now are not attending school online in Fresno Unified School District. That's the biggest group of any student population in our entire city. The system is not treating people the same based upon their race. Now, the thing that people struggle with, and I'll stop here, is they say, well, does the system mean to do that? Does that make the superintendent of schools evil? Is that, you know, does that make the internet racist? I mean, (laughs) no, that's not what it means. It just simply means 
that our system mm-hmm. is not treating people the same. And the way in which it's choosing not to treat people the same is based upon race. Mm-hmm. And so we have to do then, and this is an opportunity, and I pray it's, it's an empowerment, mm-hmm. empowering moment for people is say, wow, that is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's a system that's not creating equal access. Mm-hmm. It's a system that's not, mm-hmm. you know, processing people's you know concerns the same way mm-hmm. it's not delivering services in the same fashion to all people and and the dividing line keeps happening along race and so it just gives us an opportunity then to dig into that together and to problem solve and to bring our best to those challenges and i don't want systemic racism to be this thing that people shy away from because they think it's being driven by some Marxist objective. It's just, no, listen, look at your own community, right. see it as it is. Right. And, and then allow your theology to invite you into it. Right. So that you can become part of the healing. Right. Right. Uh, in your own community. Right, right. And then, and then to ask yourself, is there a system, whether it's housing, banking, educational, is there any system that I enter where I'm afraid that I will be denied services because of my race. If you don't ever have to think about that, you're benefiting from your individualism. You're benefiting from the color of your skin. There are those of us who we wake up and we know that there will be an obstacle that we will have to face that day based on our race. Like before we, before our feet even hit the ground and we get dressed and we walk outside the door, like there are things that we have to tell ourselves before we get in that car and we drive off based on our race that some of y'all don't have to think about. You just don't. And what a privilege. So again, I mean, yeah, you may say, well, I'm, I'm an individual. I never, here's the thing. I never owned slaves. I never, you know, that's, that's the big, I never owned slave. I've never called anybody the N word. But there are privileges and benefits that you have because of your race that you didn't necessarily work for that I have not been afforded. So you know, the other thing, George, and I'm sorry to, to jump in, but I, I just, you know, <laughs> you got us on a roll, George. It's it's such an important topic. I mean, you just it's so important for the church, because when the church gets this and, and stops kind of you know stiff arming this right in our in our, from our pulpits, you know, mm-hmm. we, we can like the church is the most powerful. Right. You know, you know, association in our world and and. It, it remains the most powerful movement across the globe. I mean, I, I just this thing about about why well, I don't see it and stop talking about slavery that happened 140 years ago or, you know, stop. You know, why does that matter? Listen, we have to recognize we have to see it. We have to see that even if the Emancipation Proclamation right was signed, mm-hmm. even if we made Jim Crow laws illegal, even if, you know, we got rid of, you know, sort of on the books, this initiative to 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 combat, you know, drugs from a war on drugs kind of perspective. I mean, right. even if all of these things are now sort of behind us on the books, the reality is, is that every one of those residue. Yeah. Yeah. Every one of those had an impact that's generational. Generational. And, and, it's, yep. and it just compounds. Yeah. And so we have to just say, wow, that that is maybe more significant than I've ever acknowledged. Mm -hmm. While public education is available to every child, there are lingering effects Mm -hmm. of 
all of our nation's history mm-hmm. that have shaped the way our communities were designed, that mm-hmm. have shaped you know, where people have lived, that have shaped how much access they had to land ownership, that have shaped. We've got to recognize that's part of the picture. Yeah. It still is part of this picture. And, and it gives us, again, I pray that this is empowering for, for people to know, like, we can, as the church, become part of, you know, God's kingdom on earth. Mm-hmm. And we can usher that in instead of stiff arming it, you know, at the door. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing areas of pain and lament. I wasn't planning on closing this way, but it might be appropriate with just that theme of like remembrance and not, and I think you framed it this way, Phil, like seeing and Reese, you talked about memory. Reese, would you mind if you're able to share a story where you became aware of this or on a deeper level of the pain of racism personally on a personal level that you maybe experienced just to let that sit with, with us as listeners before we go. Yeah, I was, uh, I was in the fourth grade actually. And recess was just ending. And so there was a bell that, you know, the bell would ring and you supposed, you're supposed to freeze and then another bell would ring. And then you walk over to your line to, to go back into, into the classroom. And that first bell rang and we froze second bell rang. We start walking over to the line and I was first in the line and a young white boy, I'm not going to say his name, but a young white boy didn't like that. This little black girl was first in line. And this little white boy punched me in the stomach and called me the N word, you N word. And yes, I was surprised. Yes, I was in pain. Yes, I was shocked. But I'm not sure if the pain and the shock stemmed from the the actual punch in the stomach or if it stemmed from being called a derogatory term or if because all of this happened in front of a white woman teacher and she said nothing she did nothing to come to my defense she did nothing to reprimand this young white boy and so to this day to this day i wonder i wonder where the source of the pain for me was rooted in again was it the punch was it being called the n-word or was it the adult who was entrusted to care for me? And she said and did nothing. And I wonder where that young boy is today. I wonder in what ways is he still punching black women in the stomach? Is he still calling black women derogatory terms? And I wonder where that white teacher is today. Is she still silent and complicit? Or is she brave enough today to speak? out when she sees injustice happening right in front of her face. So. Thank you for sharing your story. Just want to thank you guys for, for coming on to our podcast. You know, these are deep waters and our, our country is going through a time where it's the idols are being unmasked (laughs) and seen for what they are. And the church has a real, I think, opportunity and obligation to step into this. Thank you guys for being peacemakers. Thank you guys for being reconcilers, truth tellers, Reese and Phil Sky. Thank you both. Thank you, George. listening to common grace a whitewater podcast we would love to hear from you if you have any questions about this episode or have suggestions for future topics send an email to info at whitewaterchurch.org thanks for listening